Last Sunday, we began looking at habits of disciples, and today's part two. So we're going to begin with a bit of a review of what we looked at last week. First, we believe that Elam Chapel's calling is to be a church of disciples who are making disciples, helping other people become disciples of Jesus. I'd like you to watch this little short video from the Orange Conference. Orange is the curriculum we use in our Sunday school downstairs. I want you to look at this little short video from the Orange Conference. It's one of our volunteers. His name is Josh. Grew up in this church. You'll recognize him. Hear what he has to say. Click it again. Hmm, try it again. It worked earlier. We're here at the Orange Conference, as you can see behind us. And the points I'm taking away from this conference are from the first night when Reggie spoke to us, is that one of his points was a volunteer's goal is to try to make disciples and to get down at the kids' level. Now, when I first started volunteering at the church, I didn't really know what to expect. You know, as a volunteer, you know, you're helping the children's ministry, helping the kids out, and try to, you know, make it a fun time for the kids. But when he said that disciples are there, volunteers are there to make disciples, it really spoke to me in that I can now come back to the church and I can have the confidence to do that now. It's been really helpful to me, and I really like that about this conference. Now, I know it's hard to hear because there was so much background noise, but he talked about when he first started, he just helped people out with things, and, and he would uh, try to help the kids have a fun time. But now he's heard that call to be a disciple maker, and he's excited about it. And he came back with that line from the Orange Conference, every volunteer is a disciple maker, and that's true. But the greater truth is that every follower of Jesus Christ is a disciple maker. Uh, this is the implication of the Great Commission for us. This is our marching orders to make disciples. Uh, move ahead now. We need a slide four. So, yeah, here we go. Go out and train everyone you meet, far and near, in this way of life, marking them by baptism in the threefold name Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then instruct them in the practice of all I have commanded you. I will be with you. As you do this, day after day after day, right up until the end of the age. Now, a disciple is basically a learner or a pupil. And disciple-making is just simply the business of teaching or training. And this is a way of life, as the message puts it. It's our lifestyle. The lifestyle of a Christian should be to be a disciple and to help other people become disciples. Now, last week, we looked at the three actions of discipleship, or the three defining actions of a disciple. These things make a disciple. First, a disciple follows Jesus. Secondly, a disciple learns from Jesus. And thirdly, and most importantly, a disciple becomes like Jesus. This should be our lifestyle, to follow Jesus, to learn from Jesus, to become like Jesus. Now, let me see if I can do this and not fall down. There we go. So, what we looked at last week were the habits of a disciple. Now, why, why should we talk about habits? The, uh, 
the, the reason is very simple. Our, our plans and goals, um, need to catch up a couple of slides here, wouldn't he? Yeah, three habits and one more. Our, 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 our plans and goals help us know where we want to go. But it's our habits that enable us to get there. Last week was the marathon, and I, and I was thinking about some guys who were running the marathon. I thought, you know, I, 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 I did that once. I ran the half once. And, and I might say, you know, I really want to run the half marathon again. That'll be my goal. I'll run the half marathon again. But unless I get back into the habit of running four or five, six times a week, I'll never do it. It's one thing to set a goal and say, I'm going to run the half. It's another to create the habits that will make that possible. So we need to cultivate the habits of a disciple in our life and the habits of disciple-making in order to live the way of the Great Commission, the way of life of the Great Commission. Now, the reading last week was about a demonized man. What I, what I proposed to you last Sunday was that for these two Sundays, we would just take the gospel reading of the day, same reading that's being read all around the globe in all different kinds of churches, and extract from that gospel reading some habits of a disciple. Because if Jesus told us to be disciples and make disciples, everything in the gospels are going to be about discipleship. So that's what we've done. And last week, we, we saw this demonized man. His life was under the cruel domination of evil powers. This man wasn't looking for Jesus. His life was far too much under the control of these demons to do anything like that. What we see is Jesus in his love and mercy going to the man, looking for the man, coming to the afflicted man and and healing him. All the initiative in this story was taken by Jesus, not by the man. And we said it's probably true for most of us. We didn't really go looking for Jesus. We were too busy living our own lives our own way, messing things up rather badly. And Jesus came to us, and he called us by name and said, John, follow me. Follow me. Now, we considered last week the proper response to that love and mercy, and and that is humility and gratitude. So we said the first habit of a disciple is, is to recognize that Jesus took the initiative in reaching out to us And we should live in humility and gratitude toward him because of that. Then we looked at the story from the standpoint of the disciples. Uh, We we said they responded to the call of Jesus to follow them, and and they just did that as their daily routine. They followed Jesus. They got up in the morning where Jesus went. They went. And on this particular occasion, that meant getting into a boat to cross the Sea of Galilee. And as they were crossing the Sea of Galilee, they encountered a life-threatening storm. Now, Jesus falls asleep fallen asleep in the boat, and and, uh, the storm didn't seem to phase him at all. So they went and they woke him up and said, Jesus, don't you care that we're about to die? Well, Jesus rebuked the storm, and immediately it was calm. They were safe. But they hardly had time to recover from that stress when they reached shore, and what did they meet? With this madman, this demonized man, a man under the influence and control of demons. And that had to be a lot more frightening than the storm. This was a man who ran around naked. He slept at night in the graves of dead people. He slept on dead bones. He smelled like death. Once in a while they would catch him and put him in chains, but he had such phenomenal power he would just simply break the chains. 
Now, the 12 may have been in a state of panic and fear, but, but not Jesus. Jesus, as he had done in the boat, took control of the situation and set the man free. He healed him. We also said last week that being a disciple of Jesus has the potential of taking us into some pretty messy and risky places. Not so much geographically, but in relationally. As we follow Jesus, we'll be led into the lives of people who have messy lives, difficulties, pain, sorrow, suffering, mistakes. And sometimes we'd rather avoid that. But it's when we're there with Jesus that we can see him do remarkable things. The disciples hadn't gone with Jesus, they wouldn't have seen him calm the storm. They wouldn't have watched him set a man free. We need to go with Jesus where we can see Jesus at work. Now then, as they were getting ready to to go, the healed man decided that he wanted to be a disciple. He said to Jesus, I want to follow you. And Jesus said, no, you, you, you cannot follow me. I want you to go home and tell your family and your friends everything that God has done for you. And that's the third habit of a disciple, telling the people around us what God has done for us, what God did for us yesterday, what God did for us last week, what God did for us at work, what God did for us at home, what God did for us in terms of our equilibrium in our life. We want to tell people what God has done. That's the first step of making disciples. It's a habit of a disciple and the first step into making disciples. Now, these three habits, living in humility and gratitude, uh, following Jesus into the lives of people who need Jesus' help, and, and telling others what Jesus has done for our lives, these are habits that we need to develop. This morning, we're going to look at three additional habits, uh, three more habits of disciples. Now, the first that we're going to consider this morning, or the fourth on our list, this, you could, this is part two sermon. You could have said this is sermon four, five, and six. Last week was one, two, three. This is four, five, six. Uh, the, the fourth on our list, really, we began to explore last week as something that would help us be a disciple and something that would help us make disciples. So this is still a little bit of a review. We need to cultivate the habit of keeping our eyes open so that we can see Jesus' presence in our world and in our daily experience. This will help us live in humility and grace. This helps us have something to tell people about. Now, the habit is spelled out as we saw last week in Psalm 105, verse 4, as it's found in the message. Keep your eyes open for God. Watch for His works. Be alert for signs of His presence. I was looking at that verse this week, and I thought, you know, that would be a good verse for us to memorize as a church. So we're going to say it three times this morning, and that will get you started on memorizing it. So let's go to the next slide, and let's practice this together. Keep your eyes open for God. Now, you're not saying that with much enthusiasm. You're not going to memorize it that way, I'll guarantee you. You've got to get into this a little bit, okay? Let's start again. Keep your eyes open for God. Watch for His works. Be alert for signs of His presence. That's good. Let's do it again. Keep your eyes open for God. Watch for His works. Be alert for signs of His presence. We're going to do it again. Keep your eyes open for God. 
Watch for his works. Be alert for signs of his presence. Memorize it. It's from the, memorize it from the message. Look it up. Uh, or write it down right now. And, and start your day off with that. Let that be your starting for your day. You get up in the morning, keep your eyes open for God. You might ask yourself this question when you get up in the morning, where did I, or at the end of the day, where did I see Jesus today? Before you go to bed, say, where did I see Jesus today? At work, uh, at the store, on the street. Where did I see Jesus? If you think that's a bit of an odd question, you need to go back and carefully read Matthew 25, the parable of the sheep and the goats. And, and I was going to say a lot about that, but that's uh, enough. Actually, uh, our pastoral prayer alluded to that when he says, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. That's Jesus speaking. Sometimes when we see the stranger, we're seeing Jesus. I, that's strange, but we're not making that up. Jesus said that. So now we're going to look at the gospel reading for today, which is what Anna read to us a few minutes ago. In this reading, we see Jesus and his disciples heading for Jerusalem. Now, the next ten chapters of Luke are uh, one long journey. The next ten chapters of Luke describe the journey of Jesus to Jerusalem. It begins in chapter 9, verse 51. So turn to that on page 791 in your hymn book, or pew Bible, if you would, the red book. Uh, page 791, Luke chapter 9, and we're going to start looking at verse 51. Again, we're looking for habits of a disciple. We're looking for number 5 and number 6. And we start at verse 51. As the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead to a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. Jesus strengthened himself to begin his journey to Jerusalem and to the cross. Mark's gospel tells us that the disciples were astonished and the crowd was afraid. The idea of going to Jerusalem to them was risky and dangerous, and they could hardly believe that Jesus was about to do it, but he was. Now, unlike most people who would take the indirect route Jesus took to the direct route. I, I wish I could find the laser pointer that Doug gave me, but I keep losing it. So I, I can't do that. But if you look at the map here, you see Galilee at the top, just to the left of the Sea of Galilee. And you see a dotted line that comes down by the River Jordan, which is kind of the squiggly blue line. Most Jews would go from Galilee to Jerusalem by going east following that dotted line down by Enon, Salem, where John the Baptist was baptizing, down to Jericho into Jerusalem. They would avoid going through Samaria. Jesus didn't. He's going to head just straight south down that dotted line from Nazareth, Sychar, down to Jerusalem, right through Samaria. Now, he's got a, a, a fairly large group of people traveling, so... He's got to make arrangements, so he sends people ahead to make arrangements. And it says, the people, in verse 53, the people of the village did not welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. The Jews and the Samaritans had a fractured relationship marked by a long history of ethnic hatred and contempt. The Samaritans rejected Jesus because of a long-standing feud Roughly going back to the split of the kingdom after the death of Solomon. 
This is a feud that's been going on almost a thousand years. It really reached its intensity after the Babylonian exile. But this is a long-standing feud. They rejected Jesus because of a long-standing ethnic feud. Now, at this point, the sons of thunder step forward. That's James and John. Uh, that's the nickname Jesus gave them, the sons of thunder. And in verse 54, it says, When James and John saw this, they said to Jesus, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? You know, we really have to admire their faith. I mean, they actually believed that they could call down fire from heaven and it was going to happen. Do you have faith like that to uh, ask for something and really expect it to happen? I, I'm not sure I do. I, don't, I, I know I don't. I have to admire their faith, but I'm not so sure about their attitude. It's a little bit questionable. I've always thought that they were just simply put out and annoyed and vengeful. And this is get-even time. They're going to reject Jesus. We're going to get even. But now after studying it this week, I'm not so sure. I tried to find some commentators that have backed me up, and I couldn't find any, so I'm on my own here. So uh, shoot me if you don't like it. James and John knew the Old Testament very well. They knew it better than we can even comprehend. They knew the stories of the Old Testament very well. They especially would have known the stories about Elijah very well because the Israelites were looking for Elijah to come again as the precursor of the Messiah. They still do at the, at the Passover feast. There's an empty chair for Elijah. They're looking for Elijah. They have Elijah in their thoughts. Now, if you back up in Luke chapter 9, the chapter we're in, back to verses 28 to 36, it's the story of the transfiguration. And what happened in the story of transfiguration? Peter, James, and John were with Jesus on a mountain. Moses and Elijah appear to Jesus. They watch as Jesus and Moses and Elijah have a conversation. And then a cloud comes and covers them. They hear the voice of God. The cloud is gone. Moses and Elijah are gone. and They're just there with Jesus. That had just happened a few days before this event. Elijah is on their mind. I think they're, they're thinking about Elijah. And, and now I think they have in mind an Elijah story that's actually the Old Testament reading for today that we didn't read because we very seldom... There's actually four readings every Sunday, and I don't think we've ever read all four and in one of our services. A lot of churches do. They would read all four readings as part of the service. In 2 Kings chapter 1, Azariah is the king of Israel. He's not a godly man. Azariah has an accident in his, in his palace. He falls through a lattice and he's injured. And he wonders, am I going to get well? So he sends some of his servants to go to the temple of Baal-Belzebub, the temple of, of the pagan gods, to inquire whether or not he will recover. God is not pleased. An angel appears to Elijah and says, send this message to the king. Because you have consulted Baal instead of Yahweh, you will never leave your palace. The king gets the message and he's irate. He calls in one of his captains in the, of the army. says, take 50 soldiers, go out there and get Elijah and bring him to me. 
The soldiers arrive where Elijah is. They refer to Elijah as a man of God, and they order him to come to the palace. And Elijah says to them, If I am a man of God, may fire come from heaven and devour you. And it does. And you got 51 piles of ash on the ground. Word gets back to the king. He calls another commander and says, I want you to take 50 soldiers, go get Elijah. They show up. They say, man of God, come with us. He says, if I am a man of God, may fire come from heaven. And it does. There's 51 more piles of ashes. King calls in another commander, says, go get Elijah. He goes to Elijah. This guy is smart. He learns from the lessons, the mistakes of other people. He falls down at Elijah's feet and says, Oh, man of God, please spare my life. And please spare the lives of these 50 men. And Elijah says, Great, let's go. And he goes to stand before the king. The fire from heaven was a sign that Elijah was, in fact, a man of God. The king didn't really believe he was a man of God. He thought it was an annoyance. He didn't really believe in God anymore. He worshipped Baal. The sign, the fire, was a a proof that Elijah was a man of God. Now, it reminds us of another Elijah story, doesn't it? 1 Kings 18. Ahab and Jezebel have imported the worship of Baal into Israel. And they've made it a big thing. And, and Elijah comes along and sets up a contest. He said, we'll build two altars. You prophets of Baal, you priests, come and, and, and put a sacrifice on the altar, pray, and we'll see what happens. And I'll build an altar, and I'll pray, we'll see what happens. Whichever altar is consumed by fire, we know that is God. So the prophets of Baal dance all day. They cut themselves. They sing louder. Elijah makes fun of them, says, a little bit louder, guys. Maybe your ball is off at the bathroom somewhere. I mean, he really does get rather rude. And, and they get louder, and nothing happens. And finally, Elijah said, my turn. And you know the story. He builds the altar. He puts the, the, sacri- the wood on it, the sacrifice. And then he dumps water on it. And he dumps more water on it. And he dumps more water on it. Then he just prays a very simple prayer. It says, God, show that you are God. And the fire falls and ignites not just the wood, not just the the sacrifice. It consumes even the stones. It's a sign that God is God. Now, all these Jewish people know these stories, and James and John know these stories. And I don't think they're looking for revenge. I I think they want a sign. Let's give the Samaritans a sign that, that Jesus really is God. Let's prove it to them. Jesus is God. And hey, this is Samaria. And if we remember the story of Azariah and Samaria and Elijah. Let's give him the sign of Elijah. And Jesus will have nothing to do with this. He rebukes him. Doesn't say why he rebukes him. He just rebukes him. Says no. I think Jesus is saying, no, that's not my sign. That's not how I prove that I am God. How does Jesus prove that he's God? The cross and the resurrection. Jesus' acts of self-giving love are the demonstration of his deity. His giving himself as a sacrifice and love for every one of us is the proof of his deity. 
He came to give his life as a ransom, to sacrifice himself on the cross. So this story reminds us that grace is resistible. And it's important for us to keep this in mind as we seek to make disciples. Some people will just say, no, thank you. Not interested. There are any numbers of reasons why people will reject Jesus today. And, and we won't be surprised when they do refuse to become disciples. And we might even sometimes long for a dramatic sign of proof. I had a friend in seminary that, that was uh, paraplegic and, uh, and I'd throw his wheelchair into the, into the car uh, and drive into the seminary every day. And, and, uh, and I did, I've told you the stories about him. Sometimes I did some things that really weren't very nice to Paul just to make him feel like one of the guys. But we'd have these prayer meetings and people would say, boy, if God would just heal Paul, then everybody around would believe. And I'd say, no, they wouldn't. No, no, they wouldn't. Look at what Jesus, all the miracles Jesus did and look at all the people who refused to believe even with the signs. No, the, the, the signs don't work that way. So we need to develop the habit of responding to rejection with grace and love as we make disciples. And by the way, Jesus said, by this all men will know that you are my, my disciples. What did he put that line up there? Whitney, is, is it going to work? Yeah, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples. What? Fill in the blanks for me. That you love one another. Love is the sign. Loving people. So as we're making disciples, let's be careful to really love people. And now we get to the sixth and last habit based on the gospel readings. As, as they were on their journey to Jerusalem people came to Jesus and had conversations with him about discipleship. Uh, some he initiated and some they initiated. And in each case, Jesus seems to use that situation. There are three conversations. In each conversation, he uses it for a teachable moment. One of those moments that we seize to teach a lesson. And those of us that are parents spend a good part of our lives trying to find those teachable moments when we can teach our kids something important. Well, God's constantly doing that with us. Uh, so keep your eyes open for God's teachable moments. Uh, so let's pick up the story at verse 57. As they were walking along, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens to live in and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place even to lay his head. Now earlier in the chapter... Chapter 9, Luke records these words. If any of you wants to be my follower, I'm just skipping over those verses there, Whitney, I'll come back to them. Uh, if any of you wants to be my follower, my disciple, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. Just push that button again, Whitney, and see if that shows up. Yeah. You must give up your own way, take up your cross daily, and follow me. These three conversations show us what that looks like. And that's why I want to focus on these three conversations. Conversation number one, man says, I'll follow you anywhere. Jesus says, he's got no place to live. This artist depicts it as Jesus having no place to live, but underneath him are some foxes with their dens. They have their dens to live in. 
Jesus doesn't. One writer says Jesus actually places himself beneath the animal world. Foxes have dens, birds have nests, the Son of Man has no place to live. Jesus is a wanderer, and he has no place to live. He's got a harder life than the beasts of the field. And we want to follow him? That's the question he says to this guy. Do you want to follow me? I don't have a place. I'm homeless. You want to follow a homeless person? Jesus is inviting us to consider the cost of following him. This quote I I decided to share with you I think is worth thinking about. It's William Barclay. Um, It may well be that we have done great hurt to the church by letting people think that church membership need not make so very much difference. We ought to tell them that it should make all the difference in the world. We might have fewer people, but those we had would be really pledged to Christ. Second conversation, uh, Jesus invites a man to follow him. And and the man says, well, I'd I'd like to follow you, Jesus, but first let me go bury my father. That's a good thing, to bury your father. In Jewish culture, it was an absolutely inessential thing. It was the height of piety. Honor your father and mother. It's a good thing. Now, most people believe that the father wasn't dead yet. Why? Because in that culture, you buried the person the same day they died. And there were elaborate procedures for how you would prepare the body for burial before you buried them. The later the person died during the day, the harder you had to work to get those procedures accomplished before you buried them. You didn't leave them overnight. So if his father had died, the man would be home preparing his father's body for burial. He wouldn't be there talking to Jesus. So they read this as the man saying, Jesus, I'd like to follow you, but let's wait till my dad and mom pass away, and then I'll follow you. That sounds a little different now, doesn't it? Saying, Jesus, let's wait for a more convenient time for me to follow you. Now's not a convenient time. I got other things to do. I'll follow you when my parents are dead. And Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. There's a more important job to do. Go and preach the good news of the kingdom. Tell people about God's kingdom. It's as if Jesus is saying to us, choose to do what is most important with our life. Being a disciple is a radical step. Jesus must be more important to a disciple than even his or her own family. Conversation number three. A man is quite willing to be a disciple of Jesus, but first he wants to go and say goodbye to his family. Now that again sounds very good, doesn't it? And Jesus says, anyone who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom. Okay, do you recognize the story here? Anybody tell me just who's this story about in the Old Testament? Elisha. Now, it starts with Elijah. He's, he's done his thing with the prophets of Baal. The fires come down. And what happens to him? He gets completely depressed. He says, God, I just want to die. And God gives him something to eat twice. And this says, meet me at Mount Sinai. 
They meet there, and, and twice Elijah complains, and God just kind of ignores the complaint and says, Elijah, i got three jobs for you to do. I want you to go and anoint two guys to be king, and I want you to find Elisha and anoint him to be a prophet. Anoint him to be your successor. So Elijah picks up. Sometimes that's the best way to meet a depression is just get back to work. And he, and, he, and he takes off looking for these people, and he, and he finds Elisha plowing, using his father's oxen, plowing a field. And Elijah says to him, God wants you to be the next prophet. Leave the farm. Follow me. And Elisha says to Elijah, first let me go say goodbye to mom and dad. And Elisha says, sure, that's fine. Go do it. He goes, he says goodbye to his parents, he comes back, he kills the oxen, he sacrifices them to God, and he follows Elijah. Well, what's interesting is the contrast between these two stories. Elisha, it's fine. Yeah, go back. Say goodbye to mom and dad. Jesus says no. By implication, no. Follow me now. What's the difference? Jesus is infinitely greater than Elijah or Elisha, either one. He's infinitely greater. But also, I, I, I think there's another teachable moment here. Now, when you, when you plow a field, you have to keep looking where you're going, right? Not where you've been. That's important for plowing. Otherwise, you're going to waste a lot of effort and time because you're going to plow crooked lines. I didn't understand that till I married a farm girl. And even then I didn't understand it till I started talking to her brother about the importance of having GPS in his tractor so he could do straight lines and not waste fuel and, and fertilizer and seed. And Okay, now I get it. Okay, Jesus says when you're plowing, you've got to keep looking straight ahead because if you look backwards, you're going to do crooked lines. You're going to waste time and effort. And uh, in that picture we saw before, the guy's looking sideways and the donkey's looking sideways too because he's confused. Jesus said, no, you've got to keep looking straight ahead. So how does this relate to following Jesus? A disciple simply follows Jesus everywhere Jesus goes. And as we said, Jesus is a wanderer. He's always on the move. And a disciple's job is simply to keep his eyes or her eyes fixed on Jesus. Keeping our eyes straight ahead just means we're keeping our eyes on Jesus. Wherever Jesus goes, we go. We don't look back. We don't look to the side. We keep our eyes on Jesus. We don't look back at our own mistakes. I've wasted a lot of my life looking back at my own mistakes and self-pity and self-abuse. No, keep your eyes on Jesus. We don't look at what other guys are doing. I've wasted a lot of my life trying to figure out what other guys are doing. No, keep our eyes on Jesus. Keep our eyes on Jesus. That's what disciples do. And that's how we make disciples. We keep in the habit of watching Jesus. Now we're going to sing as our closing hymn the, the song that Philip played for our offertory. We're not going to sing it like Philip played it. Wish we could, but we can't. But we're going to sing it together. And I want us to sing it very thoughtfully and carefully. 
Is this your decision to follow Jesus? Though no one else would follow, yes, I will follow. Though none go with me. Is that your decision? Think about it very carefully. This, obviously, from what Jesus says, is an important decision. And once we commit to it, there's no looking back. No looking to the side. No looking to the past. Let's sing it together. I have decided to follow Jesus. Before you ascended into heaven, you gave us the great commission to go out into the whole world and make disciples and baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Help us to be faithful stewards of this message and this mission. We believe that you have given us everything we need to proclaim the coming kingdom of God and to be seeds and beginning of that kingdom here and now. May your Holy Spirit sustain us in this great work. And may we look forward in hope to the day when God's reign is established once and for all throughout all creation. Amen. God bless you.